there were times when I think I was working on pre-algebra or something to that extent. I was very good at math. I was a couple of years ahead. But because it was constructed in English, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So because I can't get the help that I needed at home, at the age of 10, I went to the train station. And as perfect strangers came out of the train, I would go up to them and say, can you help me with my homework? Can you help me with my homework? At the age of 10. Welcome to another episode of Famous Failures. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. On the podcast, I interview the world's most interesting people about the failures they had in their lives and what they learned from them. Before I introduce this week's guests, I have two requests from you. First, if you enjoy the show, please leave a rating on iTunes or Google Play. That goes a long way in spreading the word. And thanks to your support, the podcast recently hits the top 20 list on iTunes under the business category. So I really appreciate your help. Second, if you'd like to keep in touch with my writing, you can sign up for the Weekly Contrarian, which is my newsletter that goes out every Thursday to nearly 6,000 subscribers and shares with you a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that challenge conventional wisdom and change the way that you look at the world. And you can sign up for the newsletter in one of two ways. You can go to my website, ozanvarol.com, or you can text my first name, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. That's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N. You can text that to 345-345, and you'll get my free contrarian ebook called The Eight Strategies for Innovating Your Thinking, and you'll be subscribed to the newsletter as well. This week's guest is Scott Amex. Scott is the chair and managing partner at Amex Ventures, a venture capital firm. He's also an author. He grew up in South Korea without a father and in deep poverty. After he immigrated to the United States, he was placed in foster care and moved from home to home. He has created an incredibly successful life for himself through doing what made him uncomfortable, a condition that he calls Strive. In his recently released book, Strive, He discusses how the secret to success is doing the things that make you uncomfortable. His book has been endorsed with great enthusiasm by Tony Robbins, Tribeca Film Festival, Forbes, Singularity University, and other global influencers. Scott has been featured on Time, Forbes, New York Times, TechCrunch, Washington Post, Wired, and many, many other major media outlets. He is also a TEDx speaker on disruption and success. In this episode, Scott shares his personal journey from deep poverty to globetrotting success, as well as the failures that he encountered along the way. You learn the strategies that Scott uses to achieve success through discomfort and other non-traditional means. Without further ado, I give you Scott Amix. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Scott, welcome to Famous Failures. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure to be speaking with you. You've excelled in so many different ways in your life, but this is a show about failures, so that's where we'll start. So tell us about one of the most valuable failures you've had in your life and what makes it valuable. I think the one that comes to mind is just about when I turned 40, the company that I was with, which was a startup that I helped be acquired by a publicly uh, traded company. And I had an opportunity to transition over as uh, a GM of that business unit. But I chose to actually go on my own and to start my next venture. I chose to invest my personal money, quite a significant amount, and had a dedicated team of developers and designers. And for about a year and a half, we went full 
steam ahead. And we did get some good traction. There was even talk of potential M&A. But at the end, when the money dried out, you know, I really couldn't keep the employees anymore. And I had to close shop. And the reason it was uh, very important was I have had quite a bit of success in my life. But I think what really came to mind as I turned 40 was that in the past, I've always focused on things like the product, the idea, the team, the funding, the market fits, and scaling and so forth. But what was missing in the picture, and it literally took, unfortunately, 40 years, is that the product has to be about me first. So the last several years, I've been very intentional about creating a brand platform because I recognize that really the point isn't so much about a particular product or even the company that you're associated with at a point in time, but it's about having longevity and sustainability and the ability to amplify. And if you don't have a platform to do that, then it becomes very difficult. Just like what you're doing with this podcast, I've been very intentional about investing in myself. And as part of that, I've also realized that I want to share my story with others. And that's exactly why I decided to write this book called Strive, How Doing the Things Most Uncomfortable Leads to Success. The book just came out. Can you talk a little bit more about how uncomfortableness can lead to success? In terms of my background, I think it's a fair assessment to say that I have very little advantage. So give you a, a larger context, I grew up in South Korea during the 1970s. And for those that are listening who are not that familiar with the history of South Korea, Korea as a peninsula was a colony of Japan for about 45 years from the turn of the century to about, about basically 1945 when World War II ended. That was a very difficult time where we couldn't even speak our own language. We were suppressed in terms of our ability to actually live our own culture. Uh, we had to live under the oppression of the Japanese. After the World War II and we were independent, uh, we would transition right into the Korean War, the Civil War, where you have the North, that's backed by China and the Communists, and the South, backed by the U.S. So what you have is the current situation, which is you have this artificial line called the DMZ that separates technically an active war between North and the South. Now, by the time South Korea came out of this mess, the ceasefire in the 60s, we were actually poorer than most sub-Saharan countries. I think our GDP per capita was literally in the low hundreds. And in just a few decades, literally like 40, 50 decades, we skyrocketed to be one of the top OECD nation and a G20 nation. And for those of you that are listening that are old enough during the 1980s, when you heard the term Korea, it actually meant cheap quality. <laughs> so before the semiconductors, before the cars and the electric cars, autonomous vehicles, we manufacture shoes. I mean, we were basically the China during the 1980s. But one thing that was very intentional about the country was that because we didn't have a lot of natural resources and really were fundamentally just a half of a nation, the only thing we had were the people. So we invested heavily into the people and the human capital. And we brought the brightest minds from abroad, and then we continue to invest and invest. So whatever GDP and the growth that we had, we reinvested back into the society and the people. So now Korea has one of the highest level of not just college graduate, but master's and graduate degrees in the world. So the point I'm trying to make is that similar to my life, and that's 1970s, it's a good backdrop. Literally, the country, as well as myself, we had nothing. Moreover, I didn't have a nucleus family. So I, I never had a father. I didn't have any siblings. My mother had less than fourth grade education. And I vividly recall as a child having to follow her into the fields to glean after the harvest, picking up the grains from the ground, I felt. 
And that was the kind of life that I grew up in. And in the 70s, we actually had to pay teachers. That's no longer the case. So your grades were predicated on how much you could give to your teachers. And of course, we didn't have a lot of money, so I seemed to always get C's. So I just assumed that I was an average student, which is not true. At some point, my mom made a very difficult decision. She loves her home country. But despite that, because we were so incredibly poor, below poverty, significantly below poverty line, that she felt that the only way that she could advance my opportunity was to come to the U.S., despite the fact that she didn't want to. She didn't know how to speak the language. She didn't really have anybody. There were a few relatives, and that's about it. And how old were you when you uh, came to the United States? I was 10. I didn't speak a word of English. And one of the stories I, I tell is I had to learn to do homework on my own. There were times when I think I was working on pre-algebra or something to that extent. I was very good at math. I was a couple of years ahead. But because it was constructed in English, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So because I couldn't get the help that I needed at home, at the age of 10, I went to the train station. And as perfect strangers came out of the train, I would go up to them and say, can you help me with my homework? Can you help me with my homework at the age of 10? Wow. That's kind of the backdrop that I really written the book in terms of helping to show that even if you had absolutely nothing, no advantage whatsoever, that using some of the principles that I talk about in, in Strive, just about anybody, if they're willing to exercise the discomfort, that they can achieve success regardless how they define it. And so how did you go from asking strangers at a train station <laughs> to help you with your math homework to where you are now? I believe you went to the University of Chicago and did your master's in microeconomics and public policy. Please correct me if I'm wrong. So how did that transition happen? Well, actually, there's a lot more story. So what happened was soon after we arrived, there weren't a lot of jobs that my mother could actually be employed for. She was doing dishes and doing laundry and those sort of things. And she got into a car accident, and there were some series of personal issues that occurred, and it attributed to her a mental collapse. And I had escalated the matter to my uncles, and I have about four uncles by then that had relocated to Northern California. And they all basically ignored it, because in the Korean culture, it is a taboo to talk about mental illness. So a year passes by, and I think I'm in fifth grade, and I can't deal with it anymore as a child because things at home are absolutely chaotic. So I escalated to my counselor and I find literally within a few days that I am plucked out of my classroom, taken to the principal's office, whereby which a police officer escorts me to the police station. Hours later, that same day, a social worker comes to me and says, Scott, we have contacted all four of your uncles. And one by one, everyone for different reasons have said that they cannot take you in and that your mom will be institutionalized in a hospital and that I'm very sorry, but we're going to have to take you to an emergency foster care home. So that night I was dropped off at an emergency foster care facility for boys. So since the age of 13, I have been a ward of the state of California since I emancipated. You can imagine I already had very little to begin with. And then to lose my only connection, which was my mother, and be taken to a completely different city, I was in a position of absolute abyss. And it was void of any kind of support whatsoever. You know, somebody else in your position might have just given up, right? And sort of said to themselves, well, my fate has been decided. The decision has been made. And so how did you come up from that void, as you described it, that abyss, and ended up producing and leading such a successful life? Well, it's not that different, actually, I think, in, in the sense of some of the things that you write about. 
uh, doing things that's unconventional, untraditional, uh, that achieves uh, a particular positive means. If you look at statistics around foster care, it's very dismal. High incarceration rates, and if you're a female gender, we're talking pregnancy, out of wedlock, lots of issues. And it's very difficult for them to assimilate into society and have any type of economic or social stability. So that's a backdrop that I was in. And my roommates were equally bad in the sense that, you know, a lot of them were in juvie. They were in that system because of various different reasons, and they were not the nicest kids. And then something happened. The parents or the guardians of that facility forced us and mandated all the kids that we go to church. And it was a evangelical church, I think kind of a Baptist background. And every Sunday we went. And after a while, because I had this big gaping hole, I desperately wanted to know God. So if you ask me what has been my drive, I think it's a lot more than self-interest. I think at, at, in my mid-40s, I can honestly say that I do not live for myself anymore at all. Everything that I do is very intentional and it's for a higher purpose. So coming back to your point, yes, I could have made a different choice and that in turn could have led to a very different trajectory. But I chose, and I think this is a message for everyone that's listening, which is that Everyone has a flame inside. Our job is to turn that into a roaring fire. And that's what I did. I turned my energy into a roaring fire. I am naturally very quiet and reserved and analytical, but I'm literally ablaze. I'm so driven. When I was younger, for a different reason. But now I'm driven for what I hope is for something bigger for society. And I wonder if that way of looking at life or that way of living also ties back to becoming more comfortable with discomfort as well. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I think when we struggle with uncertainty or when we become uncomfortable because we're operating in a new environment or outside of our comfort zone, it's often because we're putting the spotlight on ourselves and thinking that the world is watching and that you know someone will point and laugh, that will screw up. But if you put yourself aside and view it as it could be faith or it could be perhaps service to others, then it becomes perhaps easier to dance with uncertainty and grow comfortable with uncomfortableness? I think generally I would agree with that. Going back to the Cree example is that it's actually a very young democracy. Before colonization, we had the royal king, queen, and it was very hierarchical from that perspective. And then really after independence, there really wasn't much of a democracy. And part of the reason that we had to immigrate, I think, in the 80s, 1980s or so, was because there was a movement called the Guangzhou Movement, a democratic movement, where hundreds of college students lost their lives protesting for transparent government and higher form of democracy. So kind of going back to what you're saying is that at some point, the purpose has to be bigger than ourselves. And at some point, we have to be willing to lose it all. And that is a hard ask for most people because their perspective is that of supporting their basic needs, right? And then some leisure and some relationship and so forth. They're not thinking of the kind of scale that we're talking about. But yet, because I travel so extensively, I can tell you that around the world, there are young people and older people that are desperate, looking for change, looking for opportunities. The same Korea that I just depicted, in modern time, we have 10% unemployment among the youth. And many of these young people have not only masters, but oftentimes PhDs, and they can't seem to find a suitable job in a highly competitive marketplace with scarce job openings. 
So to your point, I think at some point, yes, we do need to set aside our needs, but I think we never really get comfortable doing the uncomfortable. I'll just be very truthful about that. The point of my book, Strive, doesn't tell you that if you exercise discomfort, that it's going to become easier. So for example, like I said, I was incredibly shy. I, if you went to my LinkedIn account, not even four years ago, five years ago, you cannot even find my last name. It was Scott, A, and period. I wanted to be anonymous. So for me to get on stage, speak, share my ideas, my thought leadership, and to travel the world, meeting different cultures and different languages and different people, and embracing them as my brothers and sisters, that is a significant change. But even to this day, whether I'm going on stage or in front of a, a television camera, or I'm sharing something that's very important, I get nervous. But yet, I channel that fear, and I'm reminded as to why I'm doing it. And that's why it's so important to start with a purpose that's greater than yourself. That's such great advice. Are there particular strategies used? Because it, it's such an inspiring story. So going from being so reserved that you're not even disclosing your last name on LinkedIn to becoming a sought after keynote speaker. And for those of you listening, I would highly encourage you to check out Scott's TEDx talk on Strive and you can see what a great public speaker he is. So you're saying, Scott, that you do get nervous before each talk. And so are there any strategies you use, any sort of mental talk you employ to turn that nervousness into perhaps excitement and to shine on the stage? Yes or no. I regularly get interviewed on this topic. Uh, there was a, a particular type of breathing technique that I was interviewed about recently. But I'll tell you what I do from a daily basis. And I think it has to come down to a way of living and the kind of habits that you form. So on a daily basis, as my schedule allows, I start with reading the Bible and whatever your faith is. I think that's an it's important foundational piece. Then I meditate. And when I say meditate, I'm not talking about some metaphysical aspects, but I'm talking about breathing. Now, there are different techniques, six seconds of inhale, exhale, others are longer. I try to stretch it out to 10 seconds each. It's very difficult. But what you're doing is you are freeing your mind from all the noise. So by the time I'm done, whether I've done it for just a few minutes or for half an hour, that my mind is quiet. And I think many of us long for that peace and quiet in our heads. Then I exercise, or maybe I switch it around and exercise and then meditate. And the exercise is so important because I do not drink alcohol. I don't even drink coffee. I don't do drugs. My only form of endorphin is exercise. The way I cope with stress, aside from other mechanism, is exercise. So when I do these things, then I'm prepared, then I'm equipped to tackle the day. So when I sit in front of my computer, or when I sit in front of a person in a meeting or on the phone, I'm at my best. And that's what I do on a daily basis. Now, I do break it down in the book in terms of some very practical, accessible ways that people can start to really put strive into practice. Are there instances when discomfort could be a sign that you're doing the wrong thing? The reason I ask this is this is a show about failures. And so one of the topics that come up during these interviews is, well, when you fail, when do you know whether that failure is just a temporary glitch, a momentary blip on the radar? So you should just keep going. And in what circumstances does failure mean that you actually pick the wrong thing, that maybe it's a good idea for you to quit and pivot to something else? I love it. So you're talking about something in my book under number four, the letter I within Strive, that stands for insights. And it's about self-awareness, which basically means that if you chose to take 
a step forward in a certain area that is important to you, and you take some sort of risk during as well as afterwards, and failure is perfectly okay. Matter of fact, in Silicon Valley, we applaud failure, whereas in other parts of the world, they think it's shameful, and it's a personal reflection. And I think that's a mindset that we need to change. One thing that's very important is this notion of intentional self-examination. Uh, maybe you try something, maybe you took a risk, and you feel like, well, why didn't I achieve something great? But really, in the letter I of Strive, what I talk about is that your job at this point is to gather insights about you. Figure out what you've learned by taking those risks and then continually tweak, modify, and optimize your approach. Because you're absolutely right. If you're a scientist or an engineer or somebody in the life sciences, as, a, as an example, you're bound to have failures. You have to. That is the scientific approach. But the key is when you create a hypothesis, you have to be able to test it. And you're not going to know if it's going to work. And oftentimes, look at Thomas Edison, everyone else, or Dyson for that matter. It takes literally thousands of iterations before you get it right. And I think that's the mindset that we have to have is it is not a home run mentality. We need to think about base hits and that we're consistently showing up, whether it's raining, whether we're not at our best, and we hit that ball. We take a swing at it. And then we adjust. Maybe our feet, maybe our hips, maybe the way we hold the bat or the amount of strength, whatever it is, we make minor modifications or in some cases major pivots and to make sure that we're actually heading in the right direction. I do think there is this growing culture of looking for life hacks, a shortcut to success. How do I learn how to hit a home run as quickly as possible? But Scott, I think you're absolutely right that life is more about singles and doubles and failing and then picking up and, and moving forward again. That's a great point to, I think, wrap up the talk, but I do want to give you an opportunity to share with the audience if you have any parting words on failure that you haven't shared already. I'm sure the audience would love to hear them. What I would tell you, and I'm going to give you a very specific example, uh, because I think it's, you know, sometimes conceptual abstract conversations, it, it's hard to grasp. Not long ago, maybe about a year, year and a half ago or so, I was invited to a Tribeca Film Festival event called Tribeca Disruptor Awards. And then afterwards, they had breakout sessions. The session that I went to was under robots and AI. Now, it was about 30 or 40 people, but uh, just to give you kind of characterize the, the composition of the, the people in there, uh, we're talking about professors of major institutions. We're talking about uh, tycoons of large blue chip companies. Uh, we're talking about some of the biggest startup CEOs and people in position of power in governments and NGOs. And then there's me. I don't know these people. First time I met them. Turns out that they didn't have a facilitator, that it was meant to be somewhat organic. So guess what I decided to do? I volunteer myself. I volunteer myself, okay? Knowing the kind of caliber of people that I was around to facilitate this conversation. Now, what happened was, while other workshops had wrapped up in about 30 minutes, we were going strong about into like an hour and 15 minutes. It was robust. It was intellectually challenging. There was serious debate, healthy debate, and people got a lot out of it. Now, what did that do for me? Well, I didn't know exactly how this was going to lead to something else. But because of this, I did the next step, which was I reached out back to the founders of Tribeca. Say, look, here's what I did. I really enjoyed it. I want to be part of this organization in some capacity. And I had a chance to meet with the founder, Craig. And he liked me a lot. I, I shared with him some of the things that I'm doing. And then he invited me to become a Tribeca Disruptive Innovations Fellow 
And these are people that come from various different disciplines that are fundamentally changing the world. And he invited me to be a fellow. This is just one example. And it just continues and continues. And what happens is when you stretch yourself and do the things uncomfortable, you will find yourself meeting people that you thought that you would never meet before. Tony Robbins, that I've not met in person, but I have spoken to and have exchanged communication with, has endorsed my book. How would I have been able to reach Tony Robbins? So now I am at a point in my life, I am about one degree away from everybody of power and influence. One degree. I could not have achieved that had I not taken the risk that I'm talking about. And what happens is when you do that, new opportunities arise that frankly was never there before. Now opportunities come to me. And that's the kind of opportunity that I think is available to the listeners. It doesn't have to be somebody who already has a baseline of advantages. Anyone, if they're willing, can do this. So my call to action would be, we're going to fail. And I have failed miserably. But what I would say is, if you want more for your life, and if you are tired of spinning in the same circle, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, I challenge you. I challenge you to do the things that's most uncomfortable and that you have the opportunity to realize great success. It's available to everyone. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your amazing life story with us. Very actionable strategies for coping with failure that our audience here can use right away. So I really appreciate your time. And I encourage everyone to check out Scott's TED Talk, as well as his new book, Strive, which was just released. Thank you so much, Scott. Absolutely. My pleasure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.